This is The Guardian. Today, too many prisoners, not enough officers. What life inside a prison right now really looks like. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So if you were to imagine a Victorian prison in England, it would probably look something like HMP Wandsworth. It was built in 1851. It's a very imposing building. There's a Union Jack flying above the main gate. It's built out of really solid sandstone blocks that have been blackened by all of London's pollution. The front entrance of the prison is surrounded by these huge kind of lampposts that have got CCTV cameras at the top of them. The prison walls themselves are probably five metres tall and they are covered in coils of barbed wire. The Guardian's North of England editor, Helen Pitt, has been reporting on the state of prisons in England and Wales. The overcrowding, the appalling conditions, the decimated workforce. She went to HMP Wandsworth to find out what the situation looks like right now. The Wandsworth prison obviously has been in the news recently after Daniel Khalif, the 21-year-old terror suspect, made this daring escape from the prison kitchens and then clunged the bottom of a food delivery van in order to go on the run. So Wandsworth is the prison of the moment. And we decided to go down there, Courtney and I, my producer, to just try and talk to prisoners as they were released. It's really difficult, almost impossible, to interview prisoners inside. The Ministry of Justice makes it really difficult. So, yeah, we went, it was kind of an old-school method, catch people as they leave. Not everyone wanted to chat to her. The first couple of prisoners who came out, they were not complimentary about their accommodation in HMP Wandsworth. I asked him for his assessment on what life's like in there and he said, all I can tell you is that it's an effing uh, mm hole. (laughs) Yeah, probably not language for this podcast, but you get the picture. He looked extremely relieved to be out. The one prisoner that we did manage to have a proper chat with was the only prisoner on that morning who actually had somebody waiting for him outside the prison gates. He was wearing a bucket hat and he had this big plastic crucifix round his neck. The night that he had gone missing, did you hear about it inside then? The night when it happened, yeah, yeah. I thought something was wrong because we was like on lockdown and stuff. He had been recalled to prison after breaking the terms of his licence last time he was released. So he's no stranger to life in the prison system. And he was quite kind of sanguine. Yeah, like, so yeah, there was like mice on the induction wing. It is overcrowded. They don't really get much done, to be honest. Like, it's really slow with everything. But I guess it's prison, isn't it? We know that the day that Daniel Khalif escaped, 40% of the staff had not turned up that day. And if you don't have enough staff, it means you're locked up for far longer than you're supposed to be. In an average day, how many hours were you getting out of the cell? Some days we didn't even come out, to be honest. Especially like with what happened like, recently. Like, we wouldn't come out like, the whole day. But what does it mean to have an ever-growing prison population? And what does it say about how the prison system works 
or doesn't. It's a mystery to most of us what happens inside prisons and the government would like to keep it that way, which is why in this episode we're going to talk to people firsthand, people who have been in our prisons very recently, people who work in them, because it's only them who can provide the unvarnished truth of what's really going on. From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, are prisons in England and Wales on the brink of collapse? Helen Pidd, you've been reporting on the state of prisons in England and Wales, which by all accounts are suffering major overcrowding. How bad is it? It's really bad. So 65% of prisons are clusters officially overcrowded. And that's even according to what the Ministry of Justice judges to be decent and humane accommodation. And as of last Friday, there were 87,685 people in prison in England and Wales, which is almost a record, and also about 8,500 more people than the system is designed for. So the prison population now is five times what it was in 1900, but the really big increase has come since the 1990s. The prison population has doubled in that time. And many prisons are operating massively over capacity. So if you take Wandsworth, for example, they're operating at 170% of capacity. And that means they've got about 650 extra prisoners inside that jail than they've really got space for, or certainly not space to hold in humane and decent conditions. Helen, what does that actually look like? It means that cells that were designed for one person are increasingly holding two. So they move the single bed out and put bunk beds in. In other cases, cells that were designed for two have now got three people in. And these cells are really small. There's basically only space for a bed, a toilet. Sometimes there's a desk and that's about it. And certainly in these Victorian prisons, the cells look like, if you've watched Porridge or any of these classic prison dramas, that's what they look like. They've got peeling paint on the walls, bars on the windows and increasingly the windows are smashed as well and sometimes you know you hear reports of prisoners putting duvets up against the window because it's so cold in winter. So we know that there's obviously way too many prisoners and there is capacity for them. What does the picture in prisons look like when it comes to staffing? Yeah, staffing is the real problem. We know that in Wandsworth on the day that Daniel Khalif escaped they were 80 prison officers short. There's a prison called Woodhill, which is in Milton Keynes. A recent inspection report found that it only had half the number of frontline officers that it actually needed. So things are pretty dire. And what Mm. happens if you don't have enough staff is that prisoners get kept in their cells much longer than is ideal. And sometimes they don't get out at all. You know, if you need six officers to open up a wing and you've only got five or four, what happens? You don't unlock. Helen, you've been speaking to prisoners and former prisoners for this story. What have they told you about what it's like to live in those conditions? So I spoke to a man who's in his 20s who we're going to call Kieran. It's not his real name. So I was in Brixton before that. I was in Wandsworth and I got out um, about a month ago. And what really seems to have stuck in his mind was how little time he got out of the cell. He said that there was one time when he went four days straight without being let out. So he wasn't getting a shower. Wandsworth is a pretty old school prison, so there are no showers in their cells. They said they were understaffed. I was doing a job that was dirty work, and I'd still have to like argue for the fact that I needed a shower. 
it's a long human thing to be able to want to shower and wash. But when you ask that question, it's like, it's like they're doing you a favor, but it's my right to be able to shower. Mm, what as if you're asking for some sort of unimaginable luxury, yeah, just have a wash. How did it affect you mentally, the conditions? I'm not going to lie, it makes you quite angry, especially when you're asking for these things. You're getting treated like you're asking for something crazy. It does cause you anger. I kind of just try to keep my head down. The other thing that seems to have stuck in Kieran's memory is the rats. Wandsworth has a major rat problem on the wings and in the cells. And he was a prisoner who had a job, and his job was to do the bins and the recycling. There was one bin... It's like the bins used for tins, so this builds up over a long period of time. So the rats actually start living inside the tinnies in those bins. And when you empty it every couple of months, I'd say at least 50 plus rats come out of one bin. Really disgusting. And like Wandsworth also has a major pigeon problem. There are pigeons that fly on the wings and they leave their droppings everywhere, like inside. Mm. Yeah, not, not nice. And also like potentially a danger in terms of Yeah, exactly. Gross. What impact does overcrowding have on the support that prisoners are given? And how are they able to access it? What did Kieran tell you? He talked about the fact that there were just so little staff that emergency distress calls were going unanswered. And the sort of worst consequence of this was an incident he witnessed where a man killed himself. And... This man in particular, he had previously shared a cell with somebody. He ended up on his own. He was mentally in a really, really bad state. And he had a friend on the wing who knew just how vulnerable he was. This friend had said to the prison staff, can I move in with him? You know, I need to keep an eye on him. I need to look out for him. And the prison staff either didn't care or they were just so stretched. It didn't happen. The guy didn't move into the cell that night. And that was the night the guy committed suicide. So obviously if that friend had moved into the cell, it could have been prevented. Oh, wow. Ellen, another thing that I wonder about in all of this is the rates of addiction inside prison, because drugs are obviously a huge problem inside. So what did Kieran tell you about how people are helped or supported? Yeah, drugs are a huge problem in prisons, particularly spice, this really pernicious synthetic form of cannabis, which can leave people kind of either in a trance or they collapse. It's a really, really dangerous drug. I'm seeing people drop left, right and centre. They're smoking it and whatnot. And I was seeing every day pretty much people dropping, ambulances coming in. Theoretically, all prisons have detox programmes and support programmes to wean people off drugs. But because they're so short-staffed, there are not enough staff to man these courses. And therefore, it means that many prisoners are just spiralling deeper, deeper into addiction. And that also leads to debts in prison, which a lot of people also raised as an issue. You've got quite vulnerable prisoners owing vast amounts of money that they just can't possibly pay back. And that leads to more violence. I feel like there should be more help in place for these people. When I was in Wandsworth, I was seeing drug talks and stuff. When you can't get out of your cell, how are you going to go to these things? to get the help. This call is from a person currently in a prison in Wales. All calls are logged and recorded and may be listened to by a member of prison staff. If you do not wish to accept this call, please hang up now.
I also spoke to a guy that we'll call Paul. It's not his real name. He is currently serving a very long sentence in Berwyn Prison, which is one of these mega prisons in North Wales, which only opened in 2017. And he's seen a lot in his time in prison. He's been in for well over 10 years. And he was just talking about how violence has just become so everyday. He says you might be queuing for medication and then somebody gives somebody the wrong look. And then there's a fight. He says he's seen fights in chapel, which never used to be the case. And he also talked about how not too long ago, there was kind of a code of honour among prisoners. There were certain things that you didn't do. And one of those things was attacking female staff. And he says that's gone out the window now. And he says in Berwyn that there's been female prison officers who've been seriously hurt. And I had it on very good authority that in the past week or two, two prison officers were sexually assaulted. One had a breast groped, one was kissed by a prisoner. Oh, God. Well, you can see why there's a recruitment and retention crisis. Ellen, what did Paul have to say about the conditions inside Berwyn? Because presumably, if he's in a big modern prison, you'd think the facilities are a lot better or at least less disgusting, say, than in Wandsworth. Yeah, I mean, he says give Berwyn its credit. The building itself is ultra-modern and he's got his own cell. He's got his own shower in the cell. That's still pretty unusual in the prison estate. All the prisoners in Berwyn have got their own laptops. That doesn't mean they can just, you know go on YouTube or whatever. They're not internet enabled. But it means that you can send emails to your friends and family via a very controlled service. He can complete courses on his laptop. He can order his dinner from the menu at the canteen online. And he says, so in terms of the conditions they're held in, it's great. What he was most exercised about, actually, was what's called the Offender Management Unit, which is run by the probation service. And it's really, really important because it's supposed to prepare prisoners for the outside world. And he said he's just never seen an OMU, as they're called, as disastrously badly organised and understaffed. And he says people in the outside world should care about this because most prisoners are going to be released. Mm. And if they're released, not only not rehabilitated and maybe not cured of their addictions, but actually more criminalised than they were when they went in. That's a huge problem for society. Helen, you've painted a really grim picture across the board and I just... I wonder, where does this story actually start? Why are we in such a poor situation when it comes to prisons? It's a kind of perfect storm which takes in political decisions to be seen to be tough on crime. So successive Conservative-led governments have pushed for harsher sentences for many crimes. So judges are just imposing much longer sentences than they used to. There's also been a real backlog in the courts because they were shut down during covid The austerity years of the Conservative and coalition government meant that half of all magistrates' courts were shut, so they just can't process as many trials. And then last year also saw a really long-running barrister strike, which meant that many trials were delayed and postponed. And an unusually large proportion of those in prison are on remand, and that means that they're waiting for their trial. And Helen, how do funding cuts play into all of this? Mm. So thanks to cuts, particularly in the George Osborne era of austerity, prisons are now running in real terms on budgets that are 11% lower than they were in 2010 and on a much reduced staff. So there's about 10% fewer staff working in prisons now, despite the population having gone up. And 
the cuts affect every aspect of prison life, not just the staffing. It just means that there isn't the money to do quite basic things. Repair showers when they're mouldy, try to get rid of rats, try to get rid of the pigeon problems. And it means there's been real cuts to the services that are offered in prison. So, for example, in Boo in prison, they had staff in the prison who were working as carers for prisoners with dementia. Budget cuts means that they now don't come in and actually prisoners themselves are being paid £20 a week to work as carers. to care for other prisoners so that's where we're at and it's really expensive to keep people in prison in this country it costs almost £47,000 a year which is a lot for a system that doesn't work and the clearest statistic to show that it doesn't work is that more than two in five adult prisoners in England and Wales 42% are reconvicted of another offence within one year of being released That's so high. That obviously shows that the rehabilitation element of this isn't working Yeah, prison doesn't work It's really expensive and it doesn't work Helen, it's not just former prisoners and prisoners that you've spoken to for this piece. Who else did you talk to about the state of prisons? I had a really interesting conversation with a woman called Judith Feline, which is a great name, and she quit as governor of HMP Maidstone in despair last year. I joined the prison service because I wanted to help people who are in custody to turn their lives around, and that's not achieved by keeping people locked up for 22 hours, 23 hours a day. And as a governor, you're held responsible for your prison. But I didn't feel that I was empowered to make the positive change that I felt I needed to do. And that's incredibly frustrating when you're held accountable for what you do. She just said it was impossible to run a humane prison that was actually going to work. And she just got fed up of the penny pinching Mm. from the Ministry of Justice. She had this particular battle over curtains. Curtains. Curtains, yeah. Most prisons have a very simple curtain process, which is a bit of Velcro stuck to the wall and a bit of Velcro on a piece of material that hangs at the window. So it's not complicated. But when I arrived at Maidstone, we strangely didn't have any curtains. And I couldn't believe it when I was asked, do I really need to spend all that money on curtains? Do we really need them? Well, the short answer is yes. In the summer, the sun comes up really early and you wouldn't want to sleep without curtains. It's decency. And for me... That was the most important thing. I don't think we can expect to have people leave prison as better people, for want of an expression, if we don't treat them humanely when we keep them in custody. Helen, what did Judith have to say about her ability to hire and retain good staff? Yeah, like all prison governors, staff hiring and particularly staff retention is a major, major challenge. And it's kind of unsurprising in a way when you look at the salaries that prison officers get. The salaries have recently been increased and the starting salary is now just over £30,000, which is not a lot for a job which is dangerous. There are antisocial hours. You'll be locked away with the prisoners from the outside world for at least eight hours a day. And you only have to do eight weeks training, actually, to be a prison officer, which really surprised me. There are other countries like Norway where it's apparently a three-year degree in order to be a prison officer. So it's a job that you're not trained properly to do. And Judith Feline said that before she became the governor, she did the eight-week course just Mm. to see what it was like. And she did eight weeks on the wings as a prison officer. She said it was the hardest job she'd ever done in her life. And she said just the range of skills you need. When we watch prison programmes on television, we often get the exciting bits, which is them going through the door with a shield and helmets on and, and extracting somebody. And yes, that does happen from time to time, but not very often. But you could do that 
in the morning and in the afternoon you could have to sit on a guy's bed with him and console him because he's had really bad news in a letter. Or you could be sitting down helping somebody to read a letter he's had from home because he can't read himself. So you need those kind of soft human skills as well as being really tough. Yeah. And also the abuse that they get. I mean, we talked before about this code of honour having gone as prisons are getting more violent. But I spoke to a prison officer and she was talking about some horrendous things. For example, cups of faeces being thrown at prison officers. She's been spat at. You can see why it's a problem recruiting. Yeah. And prison officers are increasingly being poached by other government agencies, whether that's the police force or particularly the border force. So post-Brexit, they need way more customs officers and border guards. And that means that prisons that are near to airports, so Felton, for example, is near Heathrow, or some of the prisons that are near Dover, they're finding that their staff are leaving in their droves for slightly better paid jobs in the border force and far less stressful jobs. How big an impact can a good qualified prison officer actually make to the way a prison does run? Yeah, massive. It's so important. If you're fully staffed and you've got confident, experienced staff who know what they're doing, who can diffuse a situation, the ones who can kind of judge, all right, it's about to kick off now, this is when we go in heavy, and when it's better to just have a quiet chat with people. I enjoyed talking to staff and prisoners alike. You see them come into the jail and perhaps they're a bit rowdy and they're a bit stroppy. But over time, you can see them change and develop and you think, you know, there's a chance for them on release that they won't come back. And that's what it's all about, really. The prisoner that I talked to in Berwyn said that he sees instances of staff, really young members of staff, who've only been there six months. They're the most experienced people on his wing and he sees them kind of showing around the new recruits. It's crazy. The officer I spoke to said when she started and she was the junior officer, she was always on a wing with officers who had 10, 15, 20, 30 years experience. When the Conservatives decided to cut the prison budgets, they had a mass redundancy programme and it was the officers who'd been serving longest who took the voluntary redundancy. And there's this massive lack of what they call prison craft or jail craft, which is not just the practical skills you need to work in a prison, but that kind of sensibility and the ability to judge what you need to do when. We've talked about the fact that prisons aren't supposed to be just centres of punishment. They're supposed to be places where prisoners are reformed and rehabilitated. And you've talked to prisoners about what it's like not to be able to access those programmes when they are available. What about the people who are hired to actually deliver them? What did they say about their work in prisons and how hard or not that is? I had quite a heartbreaking conversation with a woman called Dr. Radha Katari, who is the lead clinical psychologist at Feltham Young Offenders Institute, which is quite near London. Feltham holds boys aged 15 to 18. And these are boys who've committed some of the most serious crimes, rape, murder, those sorts of things. And as you might imagine, many of these young people have come from really difficult backgrounds. A lot of them are extremely traumatised. They've had maybe drug-alcohol-addicted parents. Maybe they've been abused themselves. So a lot of them do need to have psychological therapy. But in Feltham at the moment, understaffing is so chronic and the violence problem so great that children are saying that they're going for days at a time without being let out of their cells. Sometimes they're only out for one hour a day. Often we are only able to speak to them through cell doors instead of have a full session or speak to them during their exercise or time outside 
it's very difficult to have conversations that are really open and honest because there isn't the confidentiality and other people on the unit would be able to hear. And just lacking that face-to-face interpersonal interaction is very difficult because we've got essentially children who are locked in cells by themselves for large periods of time. And that's a developmental period that is very much focused on socialising, understanding your place in the world, understanding your identity amongst others, learning how to interact socially and not having the space to sit with someone one-to-one in a confidential space can really limit all of these things. She was clearly hugely frustrated at the situation. We're hoping to make them feel and know that they are being held in mind and that we are there even if we're not always able to have them out for a full therapeutic 50-minute session, as it were. Everybody is really working together to try and enable that access to activities, to therapeutic work, etc. It's absolutely not the fault of the prison staff themselves. It's more a broader systemic issue. That just sounds so utterly bleak. It really is utterly bleak. But she's not giving up yet. Coming up. Why the Chief Inspector of Prisons believes that building more jails isn't a solution. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Helen, The Guardian has been speaking to Charlie Taylor, who's the chief inspector of prisons, and he made the stark declaration that 10% of prisons in this country are not fit for purpose. In an ideal world, he says they'd be shut down. What can you tell me about who he is and what he does? 
So he's the chief inspector of prisons, which means he has the right to go in any prison in England and Wales, any cell, any part of the prison. They have to let him in. I met a guy the other day at Brinsford Prison. First time he'd ever been inside. Young guy, probably 19, 20 years old. It's a prison for younger offenders. And in his room, there was a trainer and there was a rotten apple and there was a pile of rubbish in the corner. And I said to him, is that your stuff there? And he went, no, that was just in there when I got there. And then I looked at his bed and he arrived the night before. I said, you haven't got a duvet cover. And he said, oh, oh no, no, they haven't given me one. I said, you've got a pillowcase. He said, oh, no, they haven't given me one. That's a sort of example of sometimes the failure just to get the basics right. He is in charge of a team of inspectors who go around the jails and report back to the government on the good things and the bad things that they're seeing. And the reports that his team are issuing this year are getting increasingly desperate. They're putting more and more prisons in essentially special measures, just saying these prisons are dangerous. So he's like the head of Ofsted, but for prisons. Yes, exactly. And how far does his authority actually extend? I mean, once he submits these reports, is there any power for that change to then be implemented? No, he can't do anything. He can't send the rat catchers into Wandsworth. He can't order a new drug programme at a certain prison. All he can do is say to the Ministry of Justice, these are the problems, sort them out. And at the moment, what is he saying to the prisons minister? How bad are things according to Charlie Taylor? He says things are really bad. So partly it's just the dilapidated state of the prison estate which is why he says that 10% of prisons should, in an ideal world, be shut down. And those are the kind of Wandsworths of the world, these Victorian prisons that were built 150 or more years ago, the rat-infested, pigeon-infested ones. You go to a prison like Brixton, it's a Category C prison. You've got long-termers who are coming to the end of their sentences. The cells at Brixton are incredibly small, probably about 12 foot by 6 foot. You've got two prisoners in there on a bunk bed. The age profile of prisoners is higher than it used to be. So often climbing up onto a bunk bed is more difficult for some prisoners. There's an unscreened toilet, or if you're lucky, someone's put a sheet round it. And at Brixton, they're not even in the corner. They're right in the middle of the cell. So potentially you're lying in bed whilst your cellmate is sitting on the toilet. And the idea that we're going to rehabilitate people by keeping them banged up behind their door in those kind of squalid and inhuman conditions. It's just fanciful. But he wants the focus really to shift much more towards rehabilitation. And one of his real hobby horses is time out of cell. He is disturbed that so many prisoners are reporting to him that they're not getting out of their cells for more than an hour a day. And he's saying to the government, this is not acceptable. You're not going to be rehabilitated if you're in a cell for 23 hours a day. The way I look at this is the prison has a public protection duty to keep people locked up who have been sentenced by the court. But it also has a public protection duty to make sure that when people leave custody, they're less likely to offend when they come out. And if people are spending their sentences locked in the wing, locked in their cells, or not getting into any sort of activity that's going to make a difference to fill in the many skills, knowledge, understanding gaps that prisoners have got, to help to undo some of those patterns of behaviour that they're often very stuck in, to address some of the serious mental health problems that so many people have within prison. Then the danger is we just turn prison into a, a revolving door. And what, of course, that means is that our prisons continue to be full. I think ultimately there needs to be a discussion, and perhaps a discussion that almost sits outside the political cycle, which is really about who we want to lock up, how long we want to lock people up for, 
and what we want to happen to people when they are locked up. And I think if that debate can begin to happen, if we can begin to move things on, then we could potentially get to a better situation. But ultimately, this is not for the Chief Inspector of Prisons. This is for politicians, for the public to have this conversation. Helen, from everything you've said, it is really clear that prisons are in crisis. But what is actually being done to address that? How is the government responding? Well, the government's only response to the crisis is to put out statements saying, we are committed to building X number of new prisons. Sometimes they say four, sometimes they say six. And they say, and we are working hard to recruit more prison officers. That's their solution. And they project that by 2027, there might be over 106,000 people in prison. So they're projecting a huge rise. They're basically saying, we'll build more places, we'll lock more people up. Job done. How does that response stack up in the eyes of people that you've spoken to? Every single person, prisoners, prison officers, Charlie Taylor, the chief inspector of prisons, are just like, this is the wrong solution. It's all got to be about rehabilitation and education and offering people alternative paths to crime. And that was a point made by Kieran, who was released from prison just last month. People just need to be given a path. And I think education is very important with that. And I was discussing this while I was in prison, actually, with somebody. It should become like a thing where you could be sentenced to go and do a course, like an education course or something, because a lot of it is like they're not having something to do or no money or a path. Do you know what I mean? So if you put someone into education, I feel like that's going to help them not go back to prison. It's just a never-ending cycle. It's like, what happens next time when you fill these prisons? You're going to build even more. What eventually we're going to have the whole country locked up. Like, what's going on here? Ellen, what do you take away when you assess the prisons crisis as it is? It's hard to remain buoyant and optimistic when you've spent any time talking to people who work in the prison service. But I think what's kind of interesting about the discourse after this Daniel Khalif escape is that suddenly people actually cared about prisons. Because most of the time, people don't give it a second thought. Unless you've got a family member who's in prison or you've been in prison yourself, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And I'd say I was the same until 10 years ago when I became the Guardian's North of England editor working in our Manchester office alongside Eric Allison, who for almost 20 years was our prisons correspondent. He died, unfortunately, last year, but he spent years of his life in prison. He was an incredible authority on what's going on in prison. And he was constantly frustrated that so many people, including mainstream leading politicians, think that it's okay to keep prisoners in inhumane conditions and not realising that that is not going to lead two rehabilitated prisoners. He had incredible contacts, but one of his favourite tricks was to stand outside a prison <laughs> and chat to people as they're released. He used to do it outside Strangeways in Manchester quite a lot. So I learned that trick from him, which is how we ended up outside Wandsworth a few weeks after Daniel Khalif escaped. So my hope, perhaps my naive hope, is that this is going to be the moment where there'll be some grown-up conversations about how our prisons should look. Helen, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That was Helen Pidd, our North of England editor. A prison service spokesperson said, We are doing more than ever to deliver safe and secure prisons that rehabilitate offenders, cut crime and protect the public. Assaults are nearly a third lower in 2019 as a result of these efforts and our £100 million investment in tough security measures, including X-ray body scanners, is stopping the weapons, drugs and phones that fuel violence behind bars. 
At the same time, we are pressing ahead with the biggest expansion of prison places in over a century, recruiting up to 5,000 more prison officers and creating a prisoner education service so offenders get the support and skills they need to put crime behind them. To read comprehensive coverage of this story, do search The State of Prisons Today on theguardian.com. And to listen to the Today in Focus episode about Eric Allison's life, you can search for The Career Criminal Who Became a Prison Correspondent on the site or wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've talked about today, the Samaritans can help day and night. You can get in touch on free phone 116 123 or email joe at And that's it for today. I'm Nasheen Iqbal, and this episode was produced by Courtney Youssef and Sammy Kent. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers were Elizabeth Cassin and Phil Maynard. We'll be back again tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.